Today on the pod, more stagger than swagger from 100 new police officers to Stanley Park train. We look at Mayor Ken Sims' first year in office. Plus, the Marvels records the worst ever North American opening weekend box office for the franchise. Is this the beginning of the end for Hollywood's superhero fascination? And why are cities like Vancouver disproportionately impacted by foreign buyers? UBC professor David Lay joins us to discuss his solutions to return housing back to locals. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. But first, let's focus on civic politics. A year ago this month, Ken Sim and his colleagues were sworn in after voters elected uh, seven of Better City Vancouver councillors and put Sim in the mayor's chair. Uh, here's Ken Sim from the night he was elected. We will work to make Vancouver the most accessible city in the world. We're going to start the work day one to reduce permit times on building new homes and starting new businesses. We are going to expand the responsible consumption of alcohol in our parks. And we're going to bring back honours classes and the school liaison officer program. And we're going to bring a renewed lens, a compassionate lens, one that's measured by outcomes in the communities that need it the most. Now, we're going to do these things and a, a lot of other things, and we're going to do them together. But I do want to stress, this journey is going to be really hard. There will be false starts. We will make mistakes. But we can't lose if we never give up. Now, since then, we've had more police officers on the street, a few more mental health nurses, a 10.8% property tax increase, a clear of the homeless encampment on Hastings Street, a cancellation of the city's commitment to a living wage policy, and, of course, the return of the Stanley Park train. Well, sort of, if you're one of the lucky 23,000 who got those tickets. Now, if you think uh, that issue, the train issue, is not a an issue, big, big issue for parents, here's one of our colleagues trying to buy tickets online. Take a listen. But it says... 23,000 tickets were sold in under 90 minutes. I logged on at 9.24. I was in the queue for 38 minutes. So I was on before 10 a.m., which is 60 minutes, and there were no tickets. I could not get a single ticket for a single night for a single time. 90 minutes. Nuh-uh. This is worse than Taylor Swift. Look at I'm still sending things to my friends. Just one train running. Everybody was talking about it. All the moms groups. All we wanted to do was to go to Stanley Park and ride the train. And it doesn't look like we'll be doing that again this year. Rule number one in politics, never mess with mom groups. That was Amy Beeman here at CKNW trying to buy tickets uh, just uh, last week. Well, some successes and some misfires as well, as Ken Sim was said, is stating earlier that it's gonna, there are going to be some challenges there. But joining me now to discuss Ken Sim's first year in office uh, is Frances Bueller. She's a political contributor for The Globe and Mail. Frances, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks. And I loved hearing that clip. Oh, my God. <laughs> the you, passion. I know. You don't realize uh, the impact of a train and, and parents, of course, wanting to build memories with their kids until um, you hear our colleague Amy Beeman. Like, she was not happy at all, at all. And like I said, you don't ever mess with mom groups on Facebook, that's for sure. <laughs> but mm-hmm. but let's start from, from the beginning here. Your thoughts. Uh, you've covered um, many mayors uh, here in Vancouver. Your th- overall thoughts on what you've seen the first year from Ken Sim and uh, ABC. Well, as we've discussed before, I think we all expected a bit more, some big actions out right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. You know, they have eight councillors, which is called a supermajority, which means they can vote on financial issues and carry the day. Like you need eight votes to uh, on financial issues, and uh, I think people thought there would be something, you know, something beyond like getting the fountains going, canceling the bike lane in, in or removing the, the current bike lane in Stanley Park, getting the Stanley Park train going, as exciting as that is for some people. I think thought, people thought there'd be a bit more happening in the city as a whole. Um, but, you know, I think what we're seeing is that Ken Sam and his group are choosing some high-profile symbolic actions to start off with, you know, cancelling the paper cup fee as well, Uh, and knowing that it's going to be a big, long grind to work on some of the more entrenched issues, housing, homelessness, uh, public disorder, crime, um, you know, a sense that the city maybe is grubby and filled with garbage and, and so on. So, the people who like the symbolic actions think he's doing great. The people who are 
more invested in what about these long-term pro- problems. I'm hearing more from them about what? Wait a minute. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't care about the train. What about what about homelessness? So, you know, but that's Vancouver, right? That's yeah. the way Vancouver divides. Yeah, no, you raise a very good point. Now, you and I have talked about this before. Generally, certainly my rule of politics has always been that uh, if you get a majority like that, you come out with some strong, big picture policies. You do all the heavy lifting early because as you head into your second second half of your term, you become more risk averse. You start eyeing that election campaign. You worry more about public sentiment and uh, it gets a little tougher. That's all. I mean, it doesn't mean things can't be done, but things are tougher. You try to do all the tough stuff early as much as you can um, in, in your mandate. Do you think... Uh, just in regards to temperament, in regards to, you know, once uh, Vancouver of his swagger back, I think the Vancouver Sun had a, a picture of him doing push-ups, uh, his tendency not to wear suits at all uh, when going to events. I mean, is is that sort of image that he's trying to portray maybe as a tech bro? I don't know. But do you think that's suited for the Vancouver of the moment in a post-COVID environment? I mean, everyone projects a particular image about Vancouver. Every mayor does that. And, you know, you think about Larry Campbell, sort of Mr. Da Vinci, the coroner Da Vinci, you know, kind of out protecting, um, you know, people on the streets. He tried to project that image. For Gregor, it was the bike riding mayor who was going to make us, you know, net zero, turn us into a net zero city. And so, yeah, Ken Sim does project a particular image that, um, you know, Vancouver is a tech city. There are a lot of tech people working here. Um, I, but I do wonder about, as you say, that tech bro image. Like, when, uh, I had an interview with him earlier this, uh, or uh, last week, and again, he used the word swagger that he loves to use. Yeah. Uh, uh, when he's describing what he wants Vancouver to get back. And I said, you know, that's a word that I don't think a female politician would ever use. But it's beyond that. It's not even a female politician. There's only a certain group, certain type, a certain demographic, kind of the male tech thing, who would even talk about swagger so much. So that's his image. Yeah, and the reason I bring that up is you raise some good issues. Homelessness crime. I mean, citizens getting stabbed, uh, uh, you know, uh, attacks. Uh, these are very serious issues uh, for the moment in a, in a post-pandemic, a global pandemic. And you do need serious people with because these are very complex issues that you need to work for the, with the provincial and federal government. I'm not saying that he's not, but I'm just sometimes wondering that image that he is pushing um, and selling, is that fit for the moment more than anything? Yeah, I mean, I think the voters will decide on that. I think some of them feel like, um, you know, it is a bit uh, maybe lightweight in some areas. But, you know, I've also talked to others who said they did put more money into policing. They did open up an office in Chinatown. They did clear off Hastings Street, whatever you think of that. You know, like some people some people think that was a good thing. So um, I... I, I do think that um, Ken Sim, he's an interesting mayor in that he's a bit like Larry Campbell in that he, he doesn't want to grapple with pol- big policy. He wants to set goals. He wants to, like, embody a vision. But he's going to leave it to others to figure out the specifics. Like, I asked him something about what do you think of the current response on the drug crisis and safe supply. And he basically said, I'm going to let the experts handle that. That's not my bailiwick. Um, And uh, I think that's what he's doing with some of those bigger questions. He's kind of setting the goal, but then leaving it to staff people or, or, or governments elsewhere to figure out how we're going to get there. We're talking about Mayor Ken Sim. We're joined by Frances Beale. She's a political contributor for the Globe and Mail. Uh, Frances, uh, the question I did want to ask in regards to uh, Ken Sim and the fact that he, you know, a center-right party was elected, I think, after, was it 12 or 14 years? What impact do you think that 10.8% property tax increase will have between Mr. Sim and his supporters? Well... Obviously, none of them are going to like it, um, but it is one of the bold actions he took in the first year that he's <laughs> hoping true. people will forget about by the fourth year. <laughs> yeah. uh, although it doesn't look good for this year coming up because they have a lot of fixed expenses they're going to have to deal with and they want to do things. That's the whole thing. When, you have, when you're elected to like fix the city, 
if you start just cutting stuff, that leaves you no room to, like, add police or, you know, do these things that you said that you were going to do. So uh, it, they, they have a difficult, another difficult year coming up where I'm not sure that the tax rate uh, increase will be below inflation because they're paying, they have to factor in the police contract. Mm-hmm. That's a third of their budget is police. It's mostly salaries, and um, they have a big wage contract uh, negotiation going on as we speak. Uh, the mayor was on this show not too long ago, and he talked about uh, red tape reduction and that he's got a committee uh, uh, helping and working towards a plan. Um, how much of an impact can committees like this have? The reason I say that, look, he's going to have center-right voters who want to bring some sanity in their mind back to City Hall. Uh, they want City Hall to go back to the basics in regards to what municipalities used to offer. But there's some realities. You know, there's been offloading on on daycare and many other issues that the city is, has to put into its costs, deal with it in regards to their costs. Um, in regards to all of that, um, you know, do you think any one mayor can have that much of an impact in regards to just sort of getting costs under control without making deep, deep cuts? I mean, I think it's really hard, especially for the bigger cities uh, who are having to deal with so many things that are beyond their control. Mm-hmm. Um, then uh, Canada has doubled its immigration numbers. Mm-hmm. That has a huge impact on you know Canada's three biggest cities. And there's not really much money from the federal government to help them deal with that impact. Um, We are seeing a drug crisis all across North America for a single mayor to be able to, like, figure out what to do about that on their own. No. And and that's why I think in some ways that's why it's so attractive to just go and ask a bunch of rich people to help pay for repairing the Stanley Park train and getting it going again, because that's relatively simple in comparison with those other issues. Well, it's, it's in many ways, uh, I think it reflects kind of the first year for Ken Sim. There's a big announcement. We've got the trains back, but when you look at it, uh, they've got one locomotive. They don't have, uh, uh, obviously, enough carriages. Uh, there certainly aren't carriages for those in wheelchairs. Uh, and if one part, one part in any of those carriages or that locomotive go down, there's going to be a huge impact on that. So there's a huge announcement, but uh, when, when you sort of tear away the uh, the curtain a little bit, uh, there isn't as much as people expected, That, that that's for sure. Um, but they still got something done, you yeah. know, which is, as I was saying, easier to do than let's fix, let's, let's end homelessness. That is true. That is true. Uh, moving forward, just in regards to some of the things you sort of touched on, this is not going to get any easier for Mr. Sim and his council, is it? No, it's not. I mean, there are, you know, one thing that's working in his favor is, and, and that he's fostering is he has good relationships from the, with the province, as mm-hmm. far as I know. And um, I'm not quite sure about the federal government, but I'm sure he's working on that. So at least he's not at odds with other levels of government, which is if, if you're going to try and get anything done, that's super important, right? Yeah, exactly. Like if you're, if you're fighting with everybody who's hold, holding the purse strings elsewhere, that's not a good sign. Uh, but uh, those things are going to be long, time-consuming. And also Vancouver's big chunk of housing accelerator fund money, federal, is being held up because of this fight at Metro Vancouver over fees, which again is out of... Uh, Ken Sims control all of his all of the councillors from Vancouver voted to go along with what the federal housing minister asked which was to delay the implementation of those big developer fees Mm -hmm. Uh, but the rest didn't and so he has no control over that and so Vancouver might be out I don't know you know 100 million or something like that uh, in housing accelerator funds if they don't get this resolved. Wow, that is uh, that's that's a lot of money. That's for sure. I've had George Harvey. I mean, on. I'm just guessing, right? Yeah, it was going to be 140 for Burnaby and Surrey, so I have to believe that Vancouver's would have been quite a chunk. Oh, I have to be uh, because not to mention yeah. a lot of federal liberal MPs are representing mm-hmm. you. One would think mm-hmm. so. That's for sure. Uh, Francis, it's going to be. It's been a fascinating year covering uh, the mayor. It's going to be even more so in in the next few years. That's for sure. Once Let's again, see what happens a year from now when oh, we're talking again. Oh, we will. That'll be interesting. We will. I think we'll be talking before then i can promise you that. <laughs> francis thank you okay great
Welcome back to the show. Now, you remember uh, wildfire season, not just this past summer, but over the last couple of summers, uh, sometimes um, that smoke would uh, make, its all, make its way all the way down to the lower mainland. Now, when generally in those situations, we get an air quality warning, either here from CKNW or Global BC. One of the realities, uh, realities of being in a big city is that we have access uh, to that information. We have air quality warning uh, systems set up uh, in this big city. That's not so in many small rural communities in British Columbia. But that's about to change thanks to Carter Vi. Uh, that little man, young man, he's only nine years old, uh, lost his life in July of this year due to an unexpected severe asthma attack exacerbated by wildfire smoke. Now, his mom had checked Hunter Mile House's air quality advisory that day to determine if she could send Carter to a summer camp at the South Caribou Rec Centre in Hunter Mile House. Now, the air quality monitor that was available to her and the information to in Hunter Mile actually comes from Williams Lake, which is about an hour up the road. But things are about to change because this month, Carter's parents, Amber and James Vi, launched Carter's project in partnership with the BC Lung Foundation, which would provide uh, air quality monitors to many communities across British Columbia. Joining me now to talk about the issue is Amber Vi. She's co-founder of Carter's Project and mother of the late Carter Vi. Amber, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, in regards to uh, your conversation with the BC Lung Foundation and the 100-person air quality monitors, um, what goes to your mind uh, for this this achievement here in regards to just getting these monitors to the community? Um, I'm super proud that we can do this in Carter's honour. It's something that is desperately needed because had we had the proper air quality monitors in place that day, it may have been a different outcome for our family. Mm -hmm. So I'm just really proud that they reached out to us and asked us to be a part of this and that we're able to do it all in Carter's name. Mm -hmm. And these air quality monitors, so they're all going to be within the city or are they throughout the region there in Hunter Mile House? Because it is beautiful country, lots of, uh, lots of communities, a lot of folks that don't live within sort of 100 mile proper, uh, are they going to be sort of installed right in the community or surrounding parts as well? I believe it's going to be all around the community, like the little places like Lone Butte, Forest Grove, mm-hmm. um, and all within 100 mile, because we, the whole area of 100 mile is fairly large with just lots of little places around. Mm-hmm. Um, can you give me a sense of what it was like for Carter to live with asthma? Were there other challenges prior to these wildfires? Um, yeah, for Carter, it seems that every time the weather changed, it could get bad. If it was hot, it would get bad. Um, his asthma definitely affected him significantly throughout his life. He still was able to play sports and stuff, but he always carried around his little brief kit, we called it, which was a lunchbox with his puffer and stuff in it. Mm -hmm. Um, He knew when he needed to take it. But it was definitely, sometimes he got frustrated with it because he wanted to be outside all the time and running around with everybody else. And if it ever impeded on him doing that, he would get super frustrated. So... It was it was definitely tough, especially when he was younger, when we were first figuring out how to navigate life with asthma. Um, as he got older, like as a family, we were super on top of it, and he himself was super on top of it. So it didn't really it didn't cause too much grief. Um, it was common practice, though to have to take him into the hospital and go on oxygen Mm -hmm. from time to time. If he, during cold and flu season, if he got a really bad cold, it would make it a lot worse and we'd have to go into the hospital, which he absolutely hated. Um, And as well, he got pneumonia. I think he had it three times in his life. And that was just because his lungs were a little bit weaker than everybody else's. During the height of the wildfires in and around Hunter Mile House, what was it like? Would you be able to describe it? Um, when the fires, I mean, we have fires 
around here every year now. But in the last couple years, it's been crazy. Like, there's times that the smoke is so thick that you can almost, like, taste the fire. It's And it's, it's like a fog over the whole town. So it's been... It's definitely hard because you we live in such a beautiful place and you want to spend your time outside and then the smoke is just so bad that you can't even go outside. You have to stay in because it's not good for anybody, let alone someone that has a lung issue. Mm-hmm. In regards to these um, particular monitors, do you think moving forward cities all have to be looking at something like this? I mean, 100 Mile is a smaller place. Uh, but very spread out as well, as you said. Uh, do you think all cities now, big big cities, small towns, it doesn't matter, uh, that th- there should be personal, personal air quality monitors around the city? Yes, 100%. Um, from what I've learned, there are like the bigger air quality monitors in like the big cities. So even Williams Lake has something similar. Kamloops, Vancouver, like all the big places have these like government-regulated air quality monitoring systems. But the small towns are just kind of, it's like they're forgotten about. So with Carter's project, the intention is to not just put air quality monitors in 100 miles, but to go on to all of the other small communities throughout BC, one community at a time, and put air quality monitors in those places as well. Yeah, I'm told there's about 286 sites in every province and territory. There's sort of our National Air Pollution Surveillance Program, but as you say, there are tremendous gaps, uh, and when it comes to resources um, uh, in smaller communities, it's just not there. So uh, something like this is is very, very, um, very helpful. Now, did you reach out to the BC Lung Association, or they reached out, they reached out to you? No, they reached out to us, Um probably about a week after Carter passed away um, because they realized that there was, they dropped the ball in a sense. There there was this huge need that they didn't even really realize that it was there. Um, so, yeah. That's got to be incredibly frustrating. I mean, if you, these are not expensive things at the end of the day. Uh, and, no. and I guess we, part of it, I guess with climate change and, is now bringing some of these issues uh, to the fore. We didn't think about this, did we? No, not at all. Yeah. Well, I'm really uh, happy that these things have, uh, you know, come to your community and hopefully other communities along the way that do need them. And and, and they're there in, 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 mar- in, in memory of Carter. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Welcome back to the show. Well, the superhero movie may have encountered a new villain at the box office, genre fatigue. That much is clear after the Marvels misfired with $47 million in its opening weekend to land the worst debut in Marvel Comic Universe history. Now, since 2008's Iron Man, the Marvel machine has been one of the most unstoppable forces in box office history. Now, though, the aura of invincibility is showing signs of wear and tear. Here is a clip from the Marvels trailer. She's targeting every planet we call home. I would never choose to bring anybody into this. You are not the only thing standing between this and the universe. Oh my god, we're a team. Higher. Further. Faster. Clearly not fast enough, the 33rd installment in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, a sequel to the 2019 uh, Brie Larson-led Captain Marvel, managed less than a third of the $153 million, uh, its predecessor launched with before ultimately taking in $1.1 billion worldwide. So $47 million over the weekend. Many have said, as I said, a misfire. Joining me now to talk a little bit about what all this means is Rick Forchuk, TV Week magazine columnist and CKNW contributor. Rick, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Jazz. So uh, I know you're an avid movie goer, a movie buff. What does this tell you? Well, I thought, I thought it told me something quite simple. And that was in your opening comments about uh, fatigue, just the superhero fatigue that we have. But exploring this one a little further, there may be more to it than that, Jazz. Hmm. Um, For example, uh, yes, it had a poor opening. 
But the flip side of that is it still led the box office by a long shot. So it was not a strong box office weekend. Secondly, and maybe the biggest issue here, is that because of the actor strike, which of course is over now, but because of the actor strike, none of the principals in this movie were able to make the talk show circuit and promote the film. And uh, we don't know how much difference that makes, but I suspect uh, it's worth a lot of money at the box office. Otherwise, they would not go on the road and promote these films. So no promotion, a weak weekend at the box office. And I think um, equal to this is the fact that um, the fatigue sets in because the movie itself doesn't really stand alone. And it's not just that you have to have seen 2019's Captain Marvel Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to make the switch, but there are at least three different Marvel TV series streaming on Disney+, Plus, all of which contributed to this film's storylines. And uh, if you have not seen Ms. Marvel, if you haven't seen uh, Secret Invasion with Samuel L. Jackson, uh, you are stuck because a number of characters and a number of set pieces from these TV series shows up in this movie. And although I'm a Marvel fan, uh, my my love for this is starting to fade because um, I just can't keep track of who all these people are. And I'm not certain where they're all going. Uh, WandaVision is the third series that plays a part in this one, in that characters from that series show up here in the Marvels. Now, WandaVision, it's been almost two years since it was on. And if you watched it when it was new and you haven't watched it since, how are you going to remember that this person over here in this new movie was that person over there in WandaVision? Pretty tough. So I think there are a lot of factors at play, but uh, I'm coming around to this. I, yeah, fatigue. I think you're right, Jazz. <laughs> We're getting tired of this one. It's getting tired of it. It's hard to keep track of it, and there's too much of it all. So, um, judging by your comments, it seems like the producers are, have been too focused on the super fan, the one who does follow that storyline or those storylines from whether it's the movies, whether it's the TV shows or the streaming services – rather than the casual fan who wants to be uh, entertained by a story, wants to see the special effects, but may, may not be watching WandaVision or the many other streaming services or shows that are on streaming services now, that you're not watching all of them. That's part of it. Yeah, that is definitely part of it. And it is part of it for me, too, because I do keep up with this stuff. But um, when you watch one of these streaming series, and if you binge watch them, and if you did it a year ago or two years ago, it's very difficult, as I said, to put all of those pieces together. Uh, Also, the challenge with this movie is that um, it got some bad press initially, just from the uh, preview audiences. And I kind of agree with that. For example, it doesn't seem to know what it really is. Uh, There are musical elements to it. There are elements here where this looks like a Hollywood musical. Characters break out in song. There is also a complete set piece with the introduction from the Broadway show Cats, and later the movie Cats. And Cats do play a part in this film, but uh, do they deserve like a a four-and-a-half or five-minute piece where you hear that music, memories, and all the cat thing? I don't think so. And it really left me wondering what story was being told here. And, yeah, I'm not a super Marvel fan, so I don't have all of the little uh, eccentricities that they carry with them. And that's a problem. I I talked with an associate about this movie who hadn't seen it yet, Mm -hmm. and he said, should I bother? He said, I'm still trying to figure out the last Spider-Man movie. And I said, well, you know, (laughs) yeah, you should, but but, uh, be prepared to be confused because I watched the last Spider-Man movie. I was confused here. That's challenging for sure, Jazz. Yeah, I always find, I always get my updates from my 14-year-old son who follows this stuff very intimately. And even in this movie, he never brought up brought it up with me once. Can we go to the movie theaters to watch it? And that probably says a lot about its uh, pre-publicity or lack of pre-publicity. Um, I'm very curious, with the actor's strike and the writer's strike, um, and some some of these movie releases now being pushed into the uh, into 2024. Um, I know it's Barbie has had lots of success. I saw Oppenheimer had a lot of success, but is the jury still out in regards to whether or not people are actually returning and going to the movie theaters in a meaningful way beyond you know a handful of um, of, of big hits? Yeah, that's and that's the concern for people in the theaters uh, and movie people in general. So, you know, back to something we've touched on before, and that's the situation around uh, 
different kinds of programming in theaters. Uh, the Eras Tour was Taylor Swift, for example, and the upcoming Beyonce uh, live action performance. These are different kinds of movies. They're not really movies. They are entertainment events that are being held in theaters. And I think that the theater change, the distributors, are really looking to try to find additional product rather than just a movie. Because just a movie, we're learning, has to be pretty spectacular in order to really do well at the box office. Now, uh, part of it is fragmentation of the marketplace. We have all of the streaming stuff that we can watch at home. Uh, There have been four movies in the last two weeks that were both in theaters and streaming at the same time. And as a result, that's going to hurt the box office, and it's going to uh, make it more difficult for them to make money because we don't really know how many people watch those streamers. Netflix, for example, reports the number of streaming minutes. You know, there are 2.5 billion streaming minutes. Well, I don't know if that means a lot or a little or what it means. It's not like saying it led the box office with this many dollars. So it is a challenge, and I think it's uh, part of uh, this business, like a lot of them, in that it will have to adapt, it will have to make changes, it will try things that don't work, and it will try some things that really do work, and then we'll see more and more of them. I think because of uh, Taylor Swift's unbelievable success, we're going to see more of that kind of thing, for example, Jazz. Uh, And I think her total box office haul with her concert tour is well over $400 million, which is just it's staggering, really. if it wasn't for these superhero movies, what would Hollywood have left to run in these theaters? I mean, the, the big studios all are in love with these superhero movies because they, uh, they're simple. They, they transcend nationality, language. Uh, they can sell in Africa to China, to India, uh, to Germany, and I understand that. Uh, and you can sell products with them. You can sell cups at McDonald's and all those types of things and toys. But if the superhero genre is cut back significantly, what does Hollywood have left in regards to its ability to to sell the big film at the movie theater? Yeah, you're right about that. That's a really valid question. And when you look at the box office thus far this year, uh, eight of the top ten movies are sequels. Uh, so that means that uh, there's nothing original. It's an idea that's been used. It's been proven to make money, so let's do it again. Uh, Oppenheimer was different because it turned out to be something we have not seen before, characters we haven't seen before, and a story that, even though has been around in some form, we didn't really get to see on this basis. Those things are hard to do. It's hard to find the base material, the source material. It's hard to get them written. It's hard to get them financed because we know if we throw out another superhero movie there, it'll get critically bummed, but uh, it's also going to make money. And, you know, going back to Marvel's, uh, yes, it didn't do as well as the previous ones, but it still put a lot of change in the till, and that's what it's all about. So it is a problem. If I were a theater owner, I'd be really concerned about what's coming down the pipe, because as you said, a lot of big, big movies have been put off. They've been put off in some cases for up to two years. So we'll have to wait and see where it goes. But it's a challenging business. It's a changing business. And uh, I still want to go to the theater and watch my movies, Jess. <laughs> the problem is I think we're in the minority. That's the only concern, Rick. But I get your point. <laughs> That's for sure. Rick, thank you so much. Thank you, Jazz. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, we were speaking to Rick Forchuk um, uh, about the new movie, The Marvels, which came out on Friday. Um, but over the weekend, over the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, uh, made 147, sorry, $47 million over the opening weekend. That uh, is about a third of what they did um, during the 2019 release of Captain Marvel, uh, where Brie Larson was starring in. Uh, so it's $47 million. That's viewed as a huge disappointment. Remember, when these uh, numbers do come out, half of the, the dollars are kept by the movie theaters and the other half by the studio. So it's not a huge uh, profit. And certainly uh, in this case, it would cost a lot more to make a movie like that than uh, the money they made this weekend. But uh, one of the things Rick said was um, the movie itself gets very complicated because the storylines can be very complicated. And this, the, the movie isn't always made for the casual fan. Well, one fan who I'd, I would probably describe as a super fan is our own uh, Stephen Chang, a producer of this show. He went to the Marvels on Friday. Uh, Stephen, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. So tell me, uh, what was the movie like, first of all? You went on Friday, right? I did, yeah. Well, yeah, I did go on Friday. I watched the movie on opening night. And, and? Uh, honestly, it it's, it's, it's fine. It's just fine. And that's the problem with the with, um, projects that Marvel has been releasing lately is that everything has just been 
fine. There's nothing too engaging, nothing too impactful. Um, I think we got spoiled because they've just pumping out content, too much content in a year, too much focus on quantity over quality. Uh, so in this case, the, the core question with Tariq was, uh, is Hollywood's fascination with the superhero over? And that, I mean, the Marvel Universe since 2008 right. to now, they pumped. I think the movies themselves have raised uh, just over $30 billion or made at the box office. So they've done well. They right? have. They're profitable. But is it finally – is it kicking in now where you just kind of get a little tired of these things and we're not going to see so many? Yeah, well, because I'm a massive superhero guy and I love superhero movies. But the thing about Marvel is that, um, like I said earlier, they focus so much on quantity. So they're just trying to release one project after another and they try to connect, they try to connect everything um, with one TV show to one movie. And that's what it gets more confusing for the casual fan. But also for the super, for the super fan, I feel like uh, there's just not much effort put into making the storyline work. Like – if you show me the trailer of the Marvels, and I honestly wasn't interested in the Marvels. The only reason I wanted to watch this movie is because of the post-credit scene. <laughs> really? Me, I, I, honestly, Jazz, I spoiled it for myself because I wasn't even planning to watch the movie. Because that's the thing. Like, they're just not making it interesting. They're just releasing way too much every oh, single yeah. year. No, I, I, I am, my son, like I said, asked if we can go sometimes. I'm like, you know what? We're going to wait till it hits streaming because it's yeah. not just worth it. It's not worth the time for me personally to, to, to go all the time. And he gets into the minutiae of it. I can't handle it. And I just say, that's enough. I just, let's just wait till it goes back on Disney+. Plus. Now, Tim, I was mentioning earlier, Tim French, our technical producer, uh, you haven't gone to a Marvel movie you were saying since 2019. That is correct. And I will tell you why it has been what we've been talking about already. Marvel fatigue. I did a quick bit of number crunching for you. So yeah. in phase one of, of Marvel's uh, cinematic universe, they released six films over the course of four years from 2008 to 2012. Six okay. films, four years. Phase two of Marvel's uh, cinematic output was also six films, but in two years from 2013 to 2015. So same amount, half the time. Oh, wow. Phase three, and this was the last phase that I ended up watching, they put out 11 films in three years. Oh, wow. And so by the time I got to the very end of that um, run, which was uh, Avengers Endgame, I was just done. Done. I had seen, <laughs> I had seen all of them. I had enjoyed all of them. But after that, I just said, I'm out. I've seen enough. The plots are similar enough that I know what's going to happen in the next yeah. one. I just I had to put my foot down and say I've I've spent enough money on seeing these movies and I'm just I'm tired. Yeah, I mean they're well done. The special effects are amazing, and like I said, they transcend language and nationality, so they sell well globally. But Hollywood has got to get back to making something interesting, intriguing that actually speaks to adults sometimes once in a while, <laughs> they rather than just blowing things up all the time. You know, I mean, I, and I, I don't mind superhero films. Don't get me wrong, but I just get a little tired of them. Just that's all they ever are producing these days, right? Yeah. So, and that's the challenge. There's no, no one's going to look back at the era and think of The Godfather, some of these great movies made in the '70s, '80s, and '90s. Even like we we're, we not that we don't, but it's just like such a focus on these big studios, on these big things these big productions, and you get a little tired of it. Now, now we all know our city, of course, is connected to the entertainment industry. There's a reason we're called Hollywood North. Now, back in 2020, uh, Langley's Martini Film Studios opened. Uh, now, the outdoor set at Langley's uh, Martini Film Studios covers approximately six acres out of a 17-acre site at 272nd Street, south of 16th Avenue. Now, now at that film studio, you can see a New York-style street, a movie theater with a lit marquee, coffee shop, urban alley, a courthouse, a diner, town square, and a quaint small town. It's part of many uh, movies, uh, movie, movies that we've seen on our streaming services and, and of course, TV shows as well. Uh, it's part of our bustling entertainment industry. But for the first time, the Martini Town backlot in Aldergrove will be open to the public as part of a holiday merry and bright event with Christmas lights, live entertainment, and vendors. Joining me now to talk a little bit about Martini Town's merry and bright celebration is Gemma Martini. She's a CEO of Martini Film Studios and chair of the Motion Picture Production Industry Association of BC. Gemma, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Well, we are not uh, at Christmas yet, but we're getting very close. Uh, and we wanted to chat with you in regards to what you're planning to do with the back lot there in, uh, in Aldergrove at your studio. How did you come about with the idea? Martini Town was built in 2020 by a production. And through time, there's been other productions that have come there and added to the back lot. 
But this particular year, we thought we had a great opportunity to open it for the public to come and see. It's not very often that people get to see an actual film set. And it's such a pleasure to invite people in to come and see the artistry that goes into creating a backlot, as well as to see a little bit of behind the scenes of what happens on a film production. So in regards to the the backlot in this particular case, uh, is, it, is it more of a feeling of a, let's say, New York, or is, are there different types of themes and backgrounds? There are different types of themes and backgrounds. So there is a New York street. One side has the classic New York brownstone. The other side is more like a Brooklyn sort of look. Then we have another street that's kind of like any city USA, as they refer to it. We also have the facade of a theater with a marquee. There's a back alley. Those are tend to be difficult to film in. So we have one of those on our back lot. And we also have a town square with a classic courthouse facade, as well as a small town facade. So there's a bit of everything there. Uh, and will there be entertainment there as well, uh, beyond just the lot itself, but uh, for, for families? Oh, absolutely. There is music piped throughout, holiday music. And in addition to that, we have many choral performances and there is carolers and Santa's coming. We have a full schedule available for people's enjoyment. Uh, and when will it be beginning? December 1st is when we open. It's coming up very rapidly. While we're talking about the studio itself, I want to chat with you a little bit about just this recent um, uh, strike that we've had, uh, actress strike and writer's strike, uh, a very long strike uh, for, for Hollywood. Uh, your sense of just uh, what this means for the industry uh, as, as these groups have all sort of agreed upon a, a, a deal now, what does it mean here for us in Hollywood North? I would say it's a a big sense of relief. Uh, We're glad that that's over. It's going to take us a while to recover. It's been quite crippling and devastating for the crew and the companies that work in the film industry. It's the longest strike that's gone on for a very long time. Uh, So looking forward, we are looking forward to welcoming production as it ramps up. It's going to be a bit of a slow ramp up is the message that we're hearing. Uh, We're on a trade mission in Los Angeles this week, so hoping, hoping to get more information from the studios directly as to what their plans are. But we are looking forward to having the lively production we've had in the last many years. Uh, when you say that it'll be a bit of a slow startup, just because Christmas is coming around, and then and then I, I'm guessing just to get these productions up and running, it's hard to sort of just start the next day after a deal comes. You have actually have to have the stories written, the production offices set up, and moving forward, I guess. So we'll be well into, into the new year before these productions ramp up, is sort of what you're saying. You're exactly right. It takes time to load that wheel again, as I call it. (laughs) Um, Moving forward, how much of a role is streaming playing right now in regards to just Hollywood North and the kind of work we're doing here? Uh, Is that more and more sort of the production that's occurring uh, in in sort of Vancouver and Metro Vancouver? We actually do production services for every large player in Los Angeles. We also do some independence, uh, feature films. And we also have a smaller but a contingent of Canadian productions that we do. So it's not necessarily all streaming that we do, uh, but we definitely service a multitude of different studios that do both streaming and some network television. Mm-hmm. Well, all right. Well, thank you so much for your time. And once again, in regards to the, the, the Christmas time backlot, everything opens up on December 1st. And where can they go? Where can the public go for more information? MartiniEvents.ca is our website, and it's called Merry and Bright. Thank you so much for your time. Have a wonderful time in Los Angeles. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye-bye. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you. Uh, your book, um, Housing Booms in Gateway Cities, um, is very important, not only looking at the past and how we got here, but it's also part of the broader discourse, especially now uh, as we have the housing conversation, housing announcement, housing legislation that has uh, been introduced now in our legislature and the conversation around housing uh, continues as well. I guess my first question to you is, what motivated you to write this book now? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Um, well, I have lived in this city for 50 years. I'm an urban geographer, so I've been watching it carefully. Uh, I've been writing about it. Um, and it, it seemed as if I wanted to get a broader perspective on the Vancouver story. Uh, so I decided to look at four other cities and their experience with housing booms and the consequences of the housing booms, and most importantly, what the policy responses have been to those housing booms. 
So I, I chose uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, Sydney, Australia, uh, and London, England, mm-hmm. as the four other cities uh, that I would look at, all of which have had uh, housing boom issues to deal with. And the timing, well, uh, I actually started this project almost 10 years ago. Uh, and uh, I think it was the time in my career that I felt I really needed to get some uh, more perspective on the local scene. Well, let's start from the uh, from the beginning here. Uh, this didn't happen overnight, of course. Uh, there's provincial policy, there's federal policy as well. When... When did we begin going the, in the wrong direction? What was the original sin in your mind? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a nice theological term, and maybe not entirely inappropriate in some cases. Um, well, uh, I think there has, there has been a housing or at least a rental issue uh, in Vancouver. I came to Vancouver in 1972, and uh, already, uh, certainly in some desirable neighborhoods, the rents were very tight. But what is interesting is that as a starting assistant professor at UBC, uh, who was not a, no- a good negotiator for salary, so I suspect I was on the low end of the totem pole of the UBC pay spectrum, I could almost, almost, or my wife and I could almost buy a house in Dunbar in 1972. Hmm. Uh, We unfortunately did not have parental help, but if we'd had some parental help, we could have pulled it off. Now, uh, that, of course, is a long, long way from where we are today. Uh, So although there was a rental crisis in 72, I don't really think there was an equivalent ownership crisis Things really changed after Expo. I mean, I think Expo in 1986, it was intended to bring investment to what was uh, a severely ravaged economy in BC at that time. Uh, Unemployment was in double digits through much of the 1980s here. So there was a, a real desire to bring in investment. And of course, the big global growth area was uh, Asia Pacific. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so that was the beginning of the story. Uh, uh, 1988, then the Expo lands were sold to uh, very large Hong Kong developers, and that began a flow of capital into this region, uh, which it, through the 90s uh, certainly changed the cost structure. It was the early 90s, in fact, that Vancouver's house prices went ahead of Toronto's. Toronto had been the, the, the number one uh, unaffordable city up to that point, but uh, Toronto has not caught up with us again since then. Hmm. Now, what, in regards to, we've talked about attracting people uh, during Expo, post-Expo, and our con and certainly our you know our economy being uh, or in in the midst of difficulty, but what policies after that provincially and federally uh, further drove this um, this desire for uh, East Asian Asia Pacific do- dollars to come and invest in this country? Were there specific government programs that also drove or pushed uh, probably house prices even higher indirectly? Well, of course. Um uh, the business immigration program, which was quite a small program in the grand scheme of things, but was very geographically concentrated in its effects in Vancouver and Toronto, uh, brought and was intended to bring uh, wealthy, uh, wealthy business people and professional people who had already shown that they were successful entrepreneurs elsewhere, and uh, the government decided they wanted to lure them here and uh, let them loose in terms of uh, economic development uh, and, of course, bringing their capital with them. So that was a very important uh, initiative in uh, consolidating the link between 
uh, the Vancouver housing market and East Asia because uh, the lion's share of uh, business immigrants came from East Asia, at first from Hong Kong and Taiwan, and then later uh, in this century, uh, overwhelmingly from uh, from China, until the program was shut down. Hmm. Uh, so that was one. Uh, another one was uh, the uh, decision that was made in 1994 to end the social housing programs. Uh, so that uh, no new social housing or virtually no social housing was built after that date until quite recently. Uh, so we went 25 years with the, uh, the absence of uh, affordable housing, uh, social housing, uh, being built uh, under a public uh, government mandate. I think those two events uh, were significant in quite different ways, but leading to the same outcome. You're listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show, back after the break. Welcome back to the Jazz Joe Hall Show. If you're just joining us, we are speaking to David Lay. He's the author of Housing Booms in Gateway Cities. We're talking about, of course, the housing sector here uh, in British Columbia, but how other um, major uh, centres from Singapore, Hong Kong, Sydney and London, how do they deal with um, the very same types of dollars coming in to their market as well. Uh, Professor, let's touch on that a little bit. Uh, your book obviously focuses on other cities and how they responded to these uh, foreign dollars that were coming into the housing market. Uh, how did some of these cities, these global cities like Singapore and Hong Kong and Sydney and London, respond to foreign investment? Well, that's that really was exactly what I wanted to get at in this study. Uh, and what I found is that the response was quite different. But in four of the five cases, the response was unsuccessful. So that the problems that we face here are being faced also uh, in Hong Kong, uh, in Sydney, and in London. And here's the interesting one, but not in Singapore. Uh, so what did Singapore do that was different? Well, Singapore in many ways is a quite unique city-state. From the beginning, a decision was made that every Singaporean would be a homeowning stakeholder in the country. So after independence, uh, government controlled all of the land, so so that the land is all publicly owned, and developed the, a housing program where they were the major supplier. A government agency was the major supplier of housing that was leased to Singaporeans for 99 years. And uh, 80% of Singaporeans today live in that government-supplied housing, which they own, but they own leasehold. So it will return to a public trust, or could do after 99 years. The other side of the picture, though, uh, that is not something we can easily replicate here, though there certainly are federal lands that we could make much better use of um, for affordable housing, and maybe that's a point we could come back to later. But the other side here is the effect or blocking the impact of investors to carry uh, prices sky high, which has happened in the other cities. And what Singapore has done is introduced uh, very challenging taxes on investors, uh, both foreign investors and also domestic investors, Singaporean investors. Now, this is really quite interesting mm-hmm. because, of course, here in B.C., we've had a 15 and then 20 percent tax on foreign buyers uh, for some years now. Well, in Singapore, uh, this spring, they increased that foreign buyers tax to 60 percent, six zero. Oh, wow. And not, not only that, but if you're a Singaporean... Again, as of this spring, this is a tax that has been constantly rising over the years. Uh, This spring, uh, for purchase of a second property by a Singaporean, a 25% tax was introduced. 
Uh, if it was a third property, it was a 30% tax. So in other words, they are taxing very hard uh, the investment dollar. And uh, they have been able, with both this demand management and also the supply of public units, to keep housing affordable. But they really work at it. Uh, I mean, we here introduced a tax as a one-time tax. And it had a short-term effect, uh, but then these taxes just get built into the cost of doing business. Uh, what Singapore has shown is the need to keep on top of this constantly. And they have, they have uh, experienced much more pressures than BC has in an ongoing way in terms of uh, foreign capital, including, of course, capital from uh, North America in that big quantitative easing program following the global financial crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, the former comment you made in regards to Singapore, the government itself being involved in housing would, as you say, be very difficult to replicate here uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, but the latter, with the taxation issue, one would argue you could continue to move up. And I would think, broadly speaking, would generally be, be acceptable uh, to the public, although there I'm sure there'll be some pushback from local investors. But it seems to, as you say, it has worked in Singapore. Yes. Now, the, the, the one other point I missed there is for first-time home buyers, there is no tax at all. So uh, there would be no, the equivalent of our transfer tax would be, would be zero there. Um, but uh, I, I do think that this is a policy that is worth looking at seriously. Of course, you couldn't, grandf uh, you couldn't grandfather it. You couldn't go back and say to people who have bought investment properties in the past. But I think going forward, this is something that really could be looked at. And the tax already exists, but at a very, very low level and incrementally uh, as need arises, which is how it's done in Singapore, uh, it could be adjusted upwards. My guest is David Lay. We were talking about his new book, Housing Booms in Gateway Cities. Uh, Professor, I'm, I'm curious, um, China itself, and domestically, and Xi Jinping uh, has been clamping down on dollars leaving China as well, um, on top of other policies that some have said that, that uh, are quite draconian in China. Do you think those domestic internal uh, policies, particularly uh, trying to prevent dollars from leaving China, could also help uh, the Vancouver market and many other gateway cities? Yes, very much so. Um, the, the boom that occurred here from around uh, approximately 2013 to 2017, when prices just went through the roof year after year, that was a period of liberalism, liberalization of uh, exporting capital from China. Uh, and uh, that came to an end, uh, and uh, the shutters went up again uh, around 2000, late 2017, 2018. And that was one of the reasons, of course, that uh, the boom came to an end here, because a, a similar boom occurred in Sydney, uh, and again, uh, from uh, largely, not entirely, of course, but largely, uh, from the export of Chinese capital. And indeed, in, in the Sydney case, a lot of Chinese developers that moved into uh, the Sydney market and sold uh, Sydney uh, condos that they were building, sold them back home to investors uh, in, in China. So yes, the, the domestic policy uh, in China is very significant. And I don't hear as much these days about the role of foreign capital uh, in our land market. I, I think that was the real high point. Uh, and since then, and with the taxation that exists here, there's been a cooling effect uh, on foreign investors. They are uh, certainly not as present as they were in the 2010s period. My guest is Professor David Lay, back after the break.
Welcome back to the show. We're speaking to Professor David Lay. Uh, he has uh, uh, produced an amazing book called uh, Housing Booms in Gateway Cities, uh, looking at uh, what other cities have done uh, in regards to foreign capital, foreign investment coming into the housing market, uh, cities like Singapore, Hong Kong, Sydney, and London. And certainly during our conversation, it looks like uh, Singapore has been um, the probably most effective in regards to dealing with some of these uh, these challenges. Um, Professor Lay, let's look to the future now. We still have significant challenges uh, in regards to affordability and housing. Um, but one would argue, based on the discourse, the federal government has woken up to it. The provincial government has woken up to it. Municipal governments have woken up to it. Do you see us getting back to a time remotely close to when you were a young professor, as you explained earlier in the interview, and you were almost able uh, to buy a property uh, on the west side of Vancouver uh, when you weren't making the, the, you know, a lot of dollars as a young professor. Do you think we can get back to a city that is uh, provides some semblance of affordability? What a sweet dream. <laughs> um, but no, I'm afraid not. I'm 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 afraid that uh, that horse has bolted. Um, I'm pretty pessimistic about what is achievable. I think some mitigation is possible, but uh, the the hole we have dug or allowed to be dug here is so deep. I I cannot contemplate policies that are going to be able to fill that hole to a degree that will get us back uh, to the 1970s or even the 1990s. The, the land value surface in this city needs, you know, I, I cannot see how you can let the air out of that without a major, major crisis. And uh, we've had recessions, we've had COVID, but still, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't dented uh, the, the land values in this city other than mildly for a short period. Um, so uh, certainly mitigation is possible, uh, improvements are possible, but I, th- I think the past, as someone said, is a foreign country. Mm. Um, I am an immigrant to this country. We are a country of immigrants. Uh, but with our immigration rates today, and I know we have an aging society, but I also sense a lot of frustration among people who probably are very supportive of immigration as Canadians, but they're concerned about so many people coming in so quickly and, and further exacerbating our housing uh, challenges. Um, do you see any way around that at this moment? We do need immigrants in this country, but the numbers that are coming in when, when you take in international students plus uh, the target of 500,000 immigrants by 2025, that seems to be exacerbating the challenge as well. Well, I, th- I think that is a, a not at all a controversial statement. Mm-hmm. We, we know that uh, of that 500,000, some tens of thousands will come to Vancouver. Uh, and it's one thing to, to have a federal policy, though I have never really seen justification for this rapid increase of numbers to the highest rate of growth in a, of any G7 country. I don't know why we are so different from mm-hmm. other G7 countries here. Anyway, um, if you're going to have a federal uh, policy that is uncontroversially going to greatly increase demand for a very scarce resource, then you have to do something pretty substantial to uh, try to make that uh, a workable policy. So I, it, it, there ought to be a very substantial uh, grant mechanism to bring funds to those urban centers, uh, and it's relatively few urban centers that will take two-thirds or 70% of this of this migration, mm-hmm. there need to be uh, significant uh, settlement services and housing grants so that these uh, immigrants can be properly uh, housed. Uh, and at this point, uh, I, I'm just totally confused by federal policy because the national housing strategy tells us that there is a great concern 
in Ottawa about housing issues, but the immigration policy is simply worsening the problem uh, through uh, in introducing very large numbers uh, of immigrants uh, that we cannot properly house. Uh, my final question to you, and I want to go back to your comments you were made about Singapore, uh, in regards to moving forward and trying to do the best we can in regards to, once again, build housing, uh, either to own or rent, for locals, at its core, my sense is effectively and aggressively using tax policy may be our single biggest and best way to hopefully return housing back to local people. Well, I'm yes, I, I would reiterate what I said earlier, that I think this is a, a, a success story elsewhere, uh, and we're always talking about, you know, what is the best uh, strategy that we can find uh, for addressing a problem. This is a strategy that has worked and so is worth uh, looking at closely. Uh, but related to it, if I can come back to a point I made earlier, mm -hmm. is the use of uh, government land for affordable housing. Now, sadly, uh, both the provincial, that is the, the past provincial government uh, prior to 2017, and the current federal government are intent on selling public land rather than using it uh, to build public housing. And, or, or social housing, affordable housing. I, I think this is a great opportunity that's being missed. I noticed a few uh, days ago that the government is saying that they will have 30,000 or so units built on public land, uh, I don't know, by the end of this decade. Uh, but we need 5.5 million new units, is what CMHC tells us. And there is federal land that could be used and is not being used. And again, this is a situation where if there's an interest in addressing the housing question, then we ought to see that uh, reflected in other aspects uh, of, of public policy. Professor Lay, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. My very great pleasure. Thank you for your questions. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.